Are you looking to learn more about investing in the central Indiana real estate market? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the Indie Real Estate Investing Podcast with TNH Realty, where we discuss all things related to investing in the central Indiana real estate market. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Indie Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Tallman with TNH Realty. We are a residential property management company that services the central Indiana market. The title of today's podcast is How Savvy Investors Are Fighting Rental Fraud. This is a big topic. It's an important topic to me uh, and to our company and to landlords all around. Rental fraud is a is a is a is a big topic. And I think I've got the right guy to discuss it with today. And that's Sina Shaku. Sina serves as the CEO of Appley. That's a software company that does a whole lot of things. And he can get into that a little bit, but, but one of the things they do and do really well is tenant screening. So welcome to the show, Sina. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, Sina, we've known each other for a bit. Yeah. For a yeah, minute. Since, huh? Yeah. Since 2007. Cause that's when we became a customer of yours, not with Appley, but with different software. So give everyone a quick background. Like people in the industry know who you are, but a lot of people in the industry aren't listening to this podcast. They're investors, probably focused on central Indiana. Um, but just give everyone a quick background about what led you to where you are today with Appley. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a total accidental software entrepreneur in a way, at least in this industry. Mm-hmm. I started early at Salesforce and my family's always been um, in the real estate industry and got a call from mom and dad who are like really frustrated with an old piece of software, which will remain nameless. And um, they said, God, there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, is there some software out on the internet? And my high school buddy and I looked around and realized that software as a service, which wasn't even called that at the time, was a, a new thing for the real estate industry. And so we started to work on a platform that would allow property managers to put their information in the cloud and streamline a lot of things that frankly were happening. I mean, this is weird, but over fax machines and, and Mm -hmm. phone calls. And, you know, I had some rental properties, our family had some rental properties and, and, you know, it was an archaic industry that was growing up kind of right before our eyes, the long tail of tech, but specifically on this topic, Jeremy, you know, like, when we talk about applications and uh, people applying for homes, like back then it was such a face-to-face business, wasn't it? You know, like yeah. you know, somebody wanted to, one of our early customers I remember at our startup was one of the largest landlords in San Francisco. And they had like leasing desks where when you wanted to apply, you would come in and there'd be an agent sitting there. They would take you to go see the home and then you'd come back and you'd fill out all this paperwork by hand. And you'd have to have all your documents in your hands. And man, I mean, like, look at where we are from those days, right? Right. Yeah. So you, you, when we first met you, you were with, or you founded a company, the company you're talking about for your parents. How old were you? How old were you when you started? Um, So what happened was I started at Salesforce. I was in like, God, somewhere between like employee 30 and 40, somewhere in that range. I came in from Oracle. Mark Benioff had kind of cherry picked some, some people to come work on Salesforce with him. And so I got in early there and Mm -hmm. what kind of nudged me out of 
uh, Salesforce was just seeing the opportunity of what was happening with software as a service in verticals and knowing that it was coming. And so Adam Silverthorne and I, my co-founder, we started a company called Propertyware and its initial idea was really just to streamline lease management because, mm -hmm. you know, we were trying to solve for a really simple problem, which was our tenants would call us and we had to go rifle through a file cabinet to figure out what we needed to know. I mean, yeah, right. it's crazy, but I'm not that old, by the way. I mean, I feel like you just <laughs> I feel old saying this to you, but like, it wasn't that long ago That's right. that you had to pull up a piece of paper to look at when somebody's lease expired mm -hmm. uh, and all of the documents that you had to collect were, you know, a piece of paper. Um, and so my folks were struggling with, you know, I mean, they're a family business and they were struggling with organizing a lot of this information. So you know, building a software business in my, let's see, at this age, I'm like 28 years old. Mm -hmm. So I'm naive. Everything felt like you could do it really fast. Um, but then you learn that and what made Adam and I really, I guess, successful in property where was working really closely with our customers. We're not egotistical type of folks that are, it's below us to get on the phone and you know, spend a two hour call with a customer just to understand the problem. I think right. I probably have visited, I'm not even kidding, probably 300 property management company offices over my career. Wow. Um, and, you know, helped a lot of those people, you know, really modernize their businesses. And uh, yeah. that spanned between my early 20s and all the way through, you know, my 40s. Yeah. So you sold Propertyware to RealPage back in. 2000, 2000 and let's see 19 it was no 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 no. i'm sorry 2009 2000, uh, yeah okay whole decade yeah uh, so 2009 <laughs> we sold to real page 2010 we went public with real page and uh our ceo steve Wynn was gracious enough to include me on the day where we rang the bell at the nasdaq and that was That's a awesome. really really special experience for me because for people who know me, like we bootstrapped property where we didn't raise a ton of money and we had a small group of investors and, you know, it was a, just a grind. And when I went to the venture capital markets, they were like vertical SaaS is not big enough for us. And we don't see this business getting big enough to, you know, have a good outcome. And then, you know, lo and behold, one day you're living the dream and you're ringing the bell on the NASDAQ. But it was also kind of like a unfortunate, sad ending to that story, which is like what makes building a, a company like, you know, this it's your baby. Mm -hmm. The people who get into the property management industry, whether you're on tech or you're on the management side, they have to have a passion for what they do because there are no massive growth outcomes. You just have to grind and grind and grind and you get to know your customers and very much so whether you're a tech player or a property management company, you have a very personal relationship with the people that you're serving. These are assets that are worth a lot of money. Um, there's high risk in this game too. It's a high risk, high reward type of equation. Yeah. So after we had sold to RealPage, I feel like a lot of the joy was taken out of it for me and my co-founder and it became like more of a corporate journey for us, which forced us to go back and rethink what what our priorities were. And so we started Apple as a, a second chance to relive the moment. Yeah. And so you've started that and we've become customers of Apple, which is like this, you know, communication workflow automation system that we use heavily. And you recently, and while you're on here specifically is to talk yeah. about 
a tenant screening component yeah. to Apple that you've created. And again, I think you're uniquely qualified to talk about this because you've had such a run in, in the tech industry specifically related to property management and are helping to solve this issue that I think is so prevalent in our industry. And that is rental fraud. And when I'm talking about rental fraud. There's a lot there. It's a big topic, but I want to specifically talk about when fraud starts at the application level. Okay. So Cena, you have some statistics on this. Yeah. I knew it was a problem. I visit Facebook groups. I know it's a problem in our industry. I don't know if landlords, like individual landlords that manage two or three or four properties think it's a problem, but it's a problem. It's prevalent out there. Um, how prevalent is rental fraud in our industry? Yeah. So look, let's take it in context real quick. So there are some pretty big life decisions you make, you know, picking a home is one of them, you know, buying a car. And so fraudsters generally go after these big ticket items to try to, you know, the fish or trick people into providing them access to what will ultimately be a fairly li large chunk of money. Right. So if you mm -hmm. think about buying a home, that's a little bit harder to fraud buying a home, right? But renting isn't that hard to cause fraud because let's go back in time. Like it was a, first, it was a pretty, you know, face-to-face -face transaction. You know, you're a landlord, you get to see this person, they walk up to you, you do a tour and then, you know, they hand you a driver's license and they hand you a check and, you know, you assume that's, that's as good as it gets. Well, the world has changed quite a bit, you know, and there's so many of us that have been affected by identity theft that it's like, I don't even need to explain that to you. Sure. Here's a really interesting stat. 80% of landlords have experienced application fraud, not once, Jeremy, but 20 plus times. So this is a result of the fact that the people who do application fraud if they're not in your market yet, they're coming. And when they do, they don't just come one by one. They come in like circles and mm -hmm. they're going to attack, you know, a specific market knowing that there's a vulnerability somewhere. It's like cybersecurity. You know, they find the weakest point and they're going to exploit it. So let me frame up another really interesting stat for you. $16 billion in losses each year from application fraud. I mean, I have some fantastic stories and we can get into it about how prevalent that is. And like when you say $16 billion, like what does that mean? Well, it means, well, you are now all of a sudden dealing with evictions and all sorts of other things that the Soho landlord hopefully doesn't have to experience that. I mean, I didn't have to deal with it until I did. And then I'm like, I don't ever want to do this again. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And then when you think about that, there's about 3.6 million evictions that are filed every year, give or take. Right. 50% of them can be tracked back to some related application fraud issue. So this is something that I guess if, if there was a silver lining in this is that it is preventable, but you have to have some domain experience and some understanding of the technologies and techniques that can be used to try to curb it in some essence. Yeah. yeah, those are some crazy statistics. I mean, I knew, you know, I I, I don't, look, to say we've never been a, a victim of rental fraud is not true. We know we have. 
Um, and it's exactly what you talk about. It's like when we go through an eviction, we do heavy forensics on it. And we have found some cases where that didn't look right. That doesn't feel right. That document doesn't look right. The information they provided would not pass the sniff test today, right? But it did when we placed them maybe a year or two ago or even six months ago. Um, because you're, you're so right. See, and I remember, you know, we're taking this little trip down memory lane about how we used to do things. Yeah. Right. When Scott and I first started, we owned a handful of rentals. It was just like you said, we, you know, we'd run an, an ad in the newspaper because that's how you connected to people. You didn't connect through the internet at that point. Um, and then you met them at the property and you had a paper application. So it was very informal. It was, it was, it was more intimate. It was like, you know, more of a relationship type thing, but it was very low tech <laughs> because right. the technology wasn't there. And then companies like, you know, proper came along and offered an online application. It was like, wow, you offered e-payments. I remember when that came out, you know, back yeah. in 2008 or whatever, all this new tech starts enter, you know, entering into our space. And so while it's great as an operator or someone that, you know, manages properties and owns properties, it's great that we have that technology now because technology is self-showings, online applications, you know, a lot of automation inside an application process. It's great that we have that. It makes us more efficient. But at the same time, we're also now competing with people with not so good intentions that are using very sophisticated technology to scan the system, create havoc. And like you mentioned, create a lot of lost money for landlords out there. Because typically if someone is coming in full fake. Like this is my whole application's fake. Like everything about me that I'm presenting to you is fake. They're going to fail almost always. You know, if you fudge a little thing here, say, well, I, you know, I make a little bit more. They can, they may be able to get by, but we've had instances where, you know, it's, it's full fake and, you know, we've seen it. I've heard horror stories of property management companies that didn't realize it until a year in and they've placed dozens and dozens of tenants that were just purely fake applications because it's hard to stay in front of it. So, you know, I'll challenge people out there right now. They can go out and Google how to create a fake pay stub. Like you can pause this podcast, Google how to create a fake pay stub. You will find paid advertisements that come up on the top of the search that tell people how to fake a pay stub and offer that. It's the tech is out there and people are using it. God bless America. There's yeah. always there's always a reason for being able to do these things, right? Yeah. So again, I think you're right. It's not a matter of, you know, if, you've, if you're going to experience rental fraud, if you haven't, you're going to. And we've seen it too, where we've heard experiences like the story I just mentioned, where they will come in waves. And if they know a company that's particularly vulnerable to it or a landlord that's particularly vulnerable to it, they'll keep feeding the applicants. Yep. Because they know they can gain your system. So it's so important to stay ahead of that yep. in order to protect yourself and from those evictions and those ultimate losses. So, yeah, I mean, you, you let's back up that you said so many good things in there. I'm just like recollecting little bits and pieces. I want to make sure people understand here. So number one, back in the old days, you used the newspaper to tell people about your listing. You had signs on the property that told yep. people about the listing. So what does that mean? The distribution of the knowledge of an available home was limited to people that were very regional. Now, with the advent of syndication, which is the 
practice of going to like a Zillow, which right. I'm sure a lot of like do yourself landlords are doing now. They're like, well, I'll just go on Zillow and I'll list it or I'll go on, you know, off pads and list it. What they do is they'll take your listing and they're going to spam it not only, well, obviously it's not spam when it's on Zillow, but they have a long tail of network sites that are like an ad network that are going to put your listing pretty much everywhere that they think they can get an eyeball to look at it. Now, there's some problems with this practice that lead to fraud. And let me talk you through them. Number one, it's a problem for you as a landlord just getting your pricing right to get the right customer. So let's take fraud out of the equation. I think what a professional property manager really brings to the table that I've learned working with thousands of companies that do this, and you're definitely one of the gold standards here, is that you're actually trying to find them the best quality renter for them. But there's a mix of also understanding what the right pricing should be and staging, you know, a lease term so it doesn't expire in the middle of winter. So all of a sudden, you know, your property's hitting the market in November and there's no mm -hmm. way someone's going to be moving in December. So professional property managers have an art of understanding the market and how to price it. But when you start syndicating your listings, unlike the old days of just putting on a yard sign and having a newspaper ad now, everyone gets to see it like a much broader market because you said like hey google showed up like sometime you know you know in the late uh, 1990s 2000 when it became prevalent well now they're taking the that information they're making it available to a broad audience of maybe some bad actors who are going to lift your photos and all your mm -hmm. information and create ghost listings or shadow listings that are not you that are essentially trying to get a renter to say gosh, that is a really good deal on that two bedroom, two bath. I mean, it should be five grand, but they're only charging $2,500. And that's where it really begins is really kind it of does. your content and repurposing it. So there's all sorts of tech that tries to stop this, you know, watermarking photos and all sorts of stuff. But like, it just, it just kind of illustrates that the problem presented itself with the tech to open up your audience to be broader than just, you know, the people that walk by your home to the general internet. But now all of a sudden you got a lot of bad actors that are looking at maybe share for our listeners, like how you've experienced that yourself with people lifting listings. Oh, it happens. You know, it happened all the time to us. Like I'm going back a year, two years, it was bad, you know? And so we have stopped and I think maybe a pro tip here, don't advertise on Facebook Marketplace your rental home. That is, it's a fodder for fraud. Craigslist is a fodder for go. fraud. There, there's those are two big sites that we do not advertise on anymore because they recycle our listings. And just like you said, you're, you're talking um, San Francisco, where you're from. You're talking Bay Area pricing. Let's get into Central Indiana pricing. Let's say it's a twelve hundred dollar rental, yeah. right? And they put nine hundred on it. Yeah, it looks really appealing. And we, I don't want to go down too far down this road, but I'll say this. We have noticed that the people who lift listings are getting more reasonable with their price. So they come up, they come across as more legitimate, mm -hmm. but they're still have every bit of ill intent to take that money from somebody to say, Hey, go look at this property, go through a showing service or whatever, or go look in the windows. Uh, just look in the windows. I, I, I'm not there this week at this week, but Look in the windows if you like it. Go ahead and wire me money, and we'll I'll meet you on Saturday. Right. right. Yeah. So they don't. We've had plenty of that happen. They don't even enter the property until move-in day. 
All right. Yeah. And then we, then we find out through different showings and whatnot. So yeah, it's been a big problem. I mean, and that part of it, we feel like we got a pretty good handle on. Yeah. Now, is it perfect? It's not, but the rental fraud is where you come in and have really created some tech. But it, 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 I only brought up this portion of it because I think fraud in general can be broken into two buckets, showing sure. fraud, touring sure. fraud, whatever you want to call that, and then the actual application fraud. And yeah. I want to illustrate that part of the showing fraud bucket, which we won't, maybe it's a separate podcast. It could be. Uh, yeah. Yeah, is, is that there is an art to pricing your property and picking the right places to put that listing that hone in on the right persona. And I think this is the key thing is like, when you really know your market, you also know who those people are that you're trying to rent to. And I don't want to take anything away from people that don't use tech that say, cause I talked to this one gal nameless Dallas's best leasing agent. And she's like, I know a good renter. I've been doing this for 40 years. And she's right. She does. Cause she's been doing it for 40 years and she knows the type of people who live in the market and she can tell when they're real and when they're not. But that's hard to do when you don't actually get in front of them and you have to use blind techniques because you said another key thing, maybe people don't know this, but like the industry is moving more towards self-showing where sure. you put a you know, lockbox on the door and the person can go look at it themselves. A lot of fraud will start there even mm -hmm. before they fill out an application. Um, so anyways, it's, it's, it's something that's worth kind of pointing out, but you're right. I think the, the topic here is like, okay, I saw this person, you know, they're a real person. Now they're applying what could possibly go wrong. Right. Yeah. Right. So I, I've kind of divided this into five different groupings of a, a proper screening, let's call it. Okay. And I'll list them. We'll go into them individually, but number one is verifying that they are who they say they are verifying identity. Okay. Mm -hmm. Number two is running a, a background check, which includes a credit report and a, you know, criminal background and a performance report and all kinds of other stuff you can get through there. The third part is verifying income. All right. I'll call the fourth, maybe it's three, three, I don't know, but it's verifying the employment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have income and you have employment. And then the fifth was what I, would call getting landlord references, but which, which I think is becoming increasingly difficult, but we'll get into that in a little right. bit. You know your tech better than anybody. Yep. Um, and I think your tech is as sophisticated as it gets out there with tenant screening. So what you do to verify identity. So someone says, hey, I just saw one, two, three Main Street. Looks good. I go to my, you know, this website, I hit apply, it takes me to Apple's rental form. Yeah. Like what is what what are you doing to protect property manager, ultimately landlords yep. to make sure that we're, we're screening who we think we, we are. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to answer that question, but there's one little thing I want to add to it. I think what makes people like TNH so unique is the tech provides info. Yeah. But yet it still takes somebody who still is like my 40 year old leasing agent in Dallas who can decipher what is the best quality person and the lowest possible risk. So everything I say after this moment should not be interpreted as, well, if I just use the tech, I'm fine. No, right. I still think there's a huge value in understanding your market and being able to decipher trends in things that may seem kind of fishy. You said something a little while ago, which was, I went back and I looked at all my 
my evictions and we're like that was wrong and it smelled wrong from the beginning we should have known better mm -hmm. so so what are the tools right so when you come to identity your first bucket this is one of those places where i will say overwhelmingly you cannot verify id on just one source of data it's just impossible so in the old days it was a driver's license most of us who grew up in the 60s through the 80s know that fake ids are not that hard to make you know the, the old joke of like you know making the cardboard cutout and putting your head in the middle that was like the early days but if you go right now you i love doing this like pause the podcast go to alibaba and type in you know whatever your state is laminate sticker and you can literally buy the reflective sticker for all 50 states on Alibaba wow. right now. That's scary. I almost hate saying that on a podcast. Mm -hmm. Cause you're like, why are you telling people this? It's going to happen because you have to look at a multidimensional way of actually identifying people and their ID. So 3d, 4d, whatever you want to go, but it starts with first the way that they reach out to you. Like you just want to make it very difficult for people to have to think of all the different ways from how they register for an account to giving you their driver's license, verifying that that is actually a valid driver's license. Also looking at things like, you know, is the face on that ID actually matching a video selfie of the person's face to combine those two for likeness? And then also starting to look at other things like, okay, does, does that address match another address that we got from them somewhere else? And I think as you look at a multidimensional way of verifying ID, it gets harder for people, especially when some of those dimensions are ones where they have to provide credentials to get into. Here's some yeah. classic examples of where people are like, oh, hey, yeah, I, my driver's license is expired. I'm waiting for a new one but this is my ID. That's an obvious no. You should just say no, get your real ID, then apply, right? Oh, I'm living, you know, I'm military. I'm living in Japan. I don't really have an ID right now. I got this other ID from another country. Is this good enough? Well, there are certain types of tech that will actually verify ID from other countries too. We use them too, but it's a limited scope. So I think when you get away from the clear path, which is a valid government issued ID and a video selfie of the person's face, plus some of these other elements, it's really hard to spoof, but it's always the contingencies that catch people. And as a Soho landlord, you're like, uh, sure. I got a hot one on the line. Seems like a really good person. I'm going to make an exception. It starts right there. Yeah. So without making it even easier for fraudsters that listen to this podcast, because I already gave away the ID on top of Alibaba, let's just say that that multidimensional ID is the way to make it just more difficult. But is it foolproof by itself? No. And that's why you have the other four items on your list. Yeah, you're right. Exceptions can't be made, right? If you're doing five things to verify identity, you do five things every single time. Every single time. That's yeah. right. And that's All right. right. Number two, let's go on. All right. So running a proper background check. So I don't know, tell me, how does this, I don't know if this really combats, you know, there's ways you can combat fraud here, but to run a background, they have to have a social security number. Yes. They've got to have a date of birth, Correct. right? And it has to correspond to something and somebody. So Correct. talk about- and, and you need permission too. So it's really important once you start pulling credit 
to understand that you as a Soho landlord, the only way you can get a credit report from somebody is if they run their credit and share it with you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a patented piece of technology that TransUnion has uh, that's pretty popular. And it's a, a credit report for the most part is a credit report. There are some nuances between looking at trade line data and summary information and whatnot that will be different. But just to clarify, you don't have the right to pull someone's credit unless you have a permissible use case. And as a one-off landlord, no one's going to underwrite you to pull just one credit report. Right. So what the industry typically does is that the renter will pull the credit report and share it with you. Now here's word to the wise. Someone just said, oh, I happen to have my credit report. Jeremy, I ran it just like two weeks ago. Can I just give you that one? You're, I mean, no, we're on a podcast, so you can't hear your, see your face, but you know, he's laughing. No, you can't because right. there's, it's so easy to doctor files. And that's something we'll talk about in one of your other points. So you really want it from the source. Now there are products that will allow them to run it and then share it with you. And that's better for sure. But there's also guidelines that you have to adhere to that most landlords don't understand when it comes to looking at somebody's credit report. You fall under FCRA compliance. Like I can't just take a credit report that I ran on a renter and just share it with somebody else who doesn't right. have the permissible right to do it. And if you do, lawsuits can be very expensive for, yeah. you know, sharing that information with someone who doesn't need to see it. I mean, do you have any anecdotal stories on that? Well, I mean, we have a ton of ex examples of where people want to share a credit report that they just ran. Right. And it's, it's always, no, yeah. <laughs> we can't do that. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, running credit, when we signed up with you all recently, it's in a whole nother audit process. You know, right. they come to the office, you take pictures, you show them where, who's running credit and how, you know, mm -hmm. there's, there, there's a process to that, that a simple land or it's not simple, but a small landlord can't do. Like you mentioned, they're not going to underwrite somebody that's going to run three or four credit reports a year. It's not going to happen. So yeah. yeah, getting that proper background check, criminal background, all that stuff is, it's important. And again, it's, it's more verifying because there's a lot of stuff that comes up on a, on a, on a background check. It's, Hey, this person lives last report and they live in Wisconsin. Well, wait a minute. They said they've lived at this address in Indianapolis for two years. Right. Right. So there's things you can glean. And again, not just relying on that tech to do yep. everything for you. There you go. So you got to have right. someone that truly like underwrites the application. You know, we're not mortgage underwriters. We get that, but we're performing a lot of the same type of steps. Yeah. But let, yeah I mean, just for like the Soho user that's listening to this. Okay. I ran the credit. It's if you've never looked at a credit report, it's probably pretty Greekish to you in the sense mm -hmm. of like it's, it could be written in Latin because there's a lot of stuff that's in the trade lines that are hard to understand. Also, it says credit score 590. What does that mean to you? Like, what does a 590 mean? And I, I think part of the art of working with folks like yourself for so long is like understanding how to take a mix of this information. Well, credit score was lower than we want. We typically look for something 600 or above, but they tend to have these other really good markers. Um, oh, oh my God, they have a credit or a trade line for medical bill that's been passed due. I mean, do you really want to like deny housing to somebody who's got student loans or medical right. bills? So these are things that you could speak to for hours. But my point there is, is like you have a responsibility on 
who should be able to look at a credit report. You always want to get it from the actual source. And then more importantly, like reading through it and knowing what you're looking for, really important address history was a great one. Yeah. Okay. The third one is verifying income. This is a big one. Um, as I alluded to before, you can Google how to create a fake pay stub. So what, this is where I think technology is really coming and helping the landlord, yeah. right? Yeah. Talk about how you all are using technology to verify income. Yeah. I mean, I think the the biggest thing that I think if I were to project into the future on what's happening, so a little bit of a side answer to your question is that I think identity eventually is going to be owned on our phones. I really do think that in the next three to five years, that most states are going to have your IDs available on a mobile phone and you're going to be able to have all of your identity locked in that mobile phone mm -hmm. and tech will allow you to be able to share it discreetly with certain parties and it'll be very hard for people to intercept now surely the fraudsters will figure that out over time but i think that's where identity is going so i think hopefully that you know players like apple and microsoft and google will start to make inroads into reducing the amount of identity fraud because it's it's systemic across a lot of different places now income verification is a whole different story now you mentioned a lot of advancements have happened here to make it uh easier to do this and it there's a, the advent of the ability so we all use things like apple pay and google mm -hmm. pay you go to a merchant site and you put your thumb on your phone or your face on your phone and you're sharing essentially your banking information with a third party direct. Now, consumers are okay with this because the packaging on that is so great on our phones that it seems like, well, that was no big deal, but let's think about this. You put all your bank information on your phone and then you go to a website and they're gonna transmit it to them. You're not worried about that website taking your bank info or your credit card info because you know it's secure. So there are other similar types of platforms that allow the consumer to connect to their bank. And instead of getting the bank statement the old fashioned way, which was what we did 20 years ago, which is here's my bank statement and here's my pay stubs. You just illustrated it beautifully and you can go Google it right now. Fake pay stub generator, fake bank statement generator. You can create those so easily. And you actually have the one of the best stories here of how crime circles will figure out a certain employer that yes it's easy to and go ahead tell your story well i mean yeah we had a like i think it was a trucking company of some sort that all of a sudden we started getting all these applications for this trucking company that didn't exist right right so they had pay stub and they all looked really good like yeah. you know i i'm not a pay stub expert i don't think i've seen probably more than most people but right. you know it, it came through very professionally the numbers added up, right? So if it ended this week and began this week, you know, the, the, the year to date stuff all seemed to add up, but you know, we had one get through, but that's it. And that's been a while back, but it was, it was, they're literally targeting us now. Yeah. And we got maybe five more applications from that trucking company that were just denied without right. even doing anything. Yeah. More. And if, if you're, denied. if you have just one home, you don't know if, this is right. not because you could be just the one time it happens. But I, I you bring up a, another point, which is like 
when we go and we try to verify income off of a pay stub, first of all, they're very easy to fake. And then the question is, is like, what's the other thing that people do? You call the employer. It's so easy to give you a fake person Absolutely. call. And then it's like, oh yeah, yeah. Jeremy's a great employee. Yeah. He's, mm -hmm. you know, on time yeah we're actually thinking about raising his pay really soon and he mentioned he was looking at this home he's so responsible so i mean people actually do this with uh landlord references too which we'll talk about and you just can't rely on it you have to again go to the source and have something super reliable so there are options to be able to connect to certain payroll providers like adp and gusto and pull that data first party um I personally don't love that as much as I like connecting directly to the applicant's bank account. And the reason why there is that there's a lot of tech. And I mean, anyone who's bought a home recently or made a large purchase has had the experience of pulling out their bank account information and connecting their bank to just verify their income. It's happening more and more. Some people hear this and say, there's just no way I do that. But, you know, I heard that four years ago when we were looking at the tech and it's like every few months i'm seeing people feel like this is okay but right. what you get by connecting to the bank account directly is you know several months up to 24 months of direct data of deposits and you know expenses that are coming in and out of the account now from the consumer's perspective you know there's always a sense of like well i don't want to see have them see what kind of purchases i'm making and that's not the intent here the intent is really to give the landlord i mean it's the exact same thing you would be handing them if you handed them a paper bill of your bank statement but it's coming from a source of truth and with artificial intelligence we can analyze it and look for trends that would help you understand if this person has the financial fitness to pay the rent that you're looking to charge for your home because that's ultimately the goal of you know either a property management company or a landlord is to figure out like how much should this guy make i mean jeremy you tell me how much should a person make in indiana to you know afford that 1200 dollars home of yours uh at least three and a half times is yeah. what are required a, a lot of times two and a half, half. Yeah. and also we look now we've changed because like you said we can get right into that bank right. so if they say hey i work at anthem blue cross Blue Shield, the big employer here Okay. Mm -hmm. And I make $6,000 a month. Well, we can, when we pull that bank, we can literally say, okay, here's a deposit from Anthem, a net deposit. So 6,000 a month. So they make 5,000 net. Here's one for 2,500. Here's two weeks later. Here's one for 2,500. Right. Yeah. That they are, they are making what they said they make. And again, it's that verifying who they are because that, that's another check on identity to say, because you know, it's one thing for a scammer to duplicate an ID or fake an ID. It's another thing for them to have the bank credentials of the person they're scamming. Yep. It adds another layer of where people kind of get pushed out. Like, okay, I made it this far. Right. I can't get any further. My, yeah. my The fraud's up. But yeah, it's just so much power there to see it right there. Um, they say they work at Anthem. Their their bank report says they right. are getting the equivalent of what, you know, they have in, from, from Anthem. And we feel really good about that. We can move forward. Yeah, and so you, it's, it's you a brought game up the point. Yeah, you brought up the point that when you connect to the bank account, you do get the address information and more identity information. That's and again, right. You're two dimensional. You're not one dimensional. Assuming that in the ID you did another dimension to your three, and there's another really important thing that I will point out. Again, you were kind of poking fun on San Francisco. It's true. We get really high quality renters here because it's so damn expensive. But when you start to go into other markets where rents are lower. 
you may find people whose jobs are gig economy working. That's right. They don't even have a pay stub that you can go look, look at. One of the most common techniques of fraud that we see with pay stubs is that it's a QuickBooks. Oh, hey, I'm a gardener. Well, you're not going to run a home to me because I'm a gardener. I mean, I get paid through, you know, people putting money or giving me checks and I send them QuickBooks invoices. And yeah. this is a huge problem because I think, you know, our responsibility here in our industry is to give people homes. We don't want to take homes away from people. Like it's our job to, you know, give quality people a place to live. It's really hard to qualify income for people who don't have that, you know, common job where you're on a ADP payroll system. So yeah. the bank account connect gives you the ability to, you know, at least if you, like you said, Hey, Anthem is there, Anthem checks out. But if not, you can see a consistent stream of income coming in over the course of eight to 10 months where you're like, this guy's a gardener, but he's making good money. He makes yeah. better money than I do. Yeah. You know? And, and Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, Uber drivers Lyft. You're you right. Know, you know, and, and so exactly. we, yeah, Dory, we have the ability now through this to say, you know, Hey, they made 5,000 one month, but they also made it two months, three months, four months, five months. It's a, it's a, it's a pattern that says they are making a living doing this. This wasn't a right. one-off type thing. And it, and it breaks down that barrier of having to prove things through pay stubs or bank statements or whatever. We just pull it right there and we get it all. So it's, again, it's another way to, again, verify who they say they are. Yep. And then we get real truthful data to make a good decision on approving them or denying them. So yeah. Again, I think, again, I'll say it again. I think it's a game changer for our industry to get that kind of technology to pull that right through. Because if you're still relying on pay stubs to verify your tenant's income, you are, you're taking a big risk. Because there are some good actors out there who will provide good pay stubs. But if they know they don't have to verify bank, the fraudsters will start to come to you and they have beautiful fake pay stubs. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't have said that better. And I think you're spot on with the fact that this is a kind of a game changer piece of technology. But I'll also say that in it by itself, without ID verification and all the other ones, it's just one dimension. It's one part. Yeah, it's one part. The fourth thing was verifying employment. Again, you know, I think if we see that someone says, I worked at Anthem, I work at Anthem, and then we have a really nice income report that shows all these direct deposits from Anthem consistently matching the salary they had. We feel good about it, but we don't always get people. I think what, what is the now seen just so people know, is it like 90, 95% of banks you can connect to through this technology, but there's some like credit unions and things that may not be synced up with those. Yeah. Those, yeah. Those yeah systems, so, right? um, we are unique in this regard that we have like three different backend providers that we can connect through. Um, but yeah, you get into the small credit unions where it's hard. Um, and I think sometimes Jeremy, you do have to fall back to a document upload. You do. And so you that's do. what we've recently kind of enhanced our offering to offer document fraud detection. Mm -hmm. So this technology essentially is built to find people who are doctoring files. Most common practice here is, I mean, you can again, go on Google and find out how you can use Photoshop or Adobe Acrobat. You can start tweaking numbers. I mean, the common thing here is just checking the math. I mean, to your point, like you said, yeah, well, the math all checked out. You'd be surprised that some fraudsters are so right. 
Oh, I've they, seen that. I know. Yeah, <laughs> like they didn't even make it all add up, but right. cookie come trails of things that are left behind at the technology level that'll tell you that they manipulated the file, analyzing, you know, differences in fonts and spacing and whatnot that human eye can't do, but artificial intelligence can very easily do. So that technology is again, another game changer, but it's yeah. a fallback. I think, you know, one thing that the listeners should know is like those property management companies and landlords that force people to do the five things every time. And I'm not going to make an exception where you're not going to be able to, you know, not verify your ID or okay, fine. I'll take your bank statement just this once. If you force everyone to do that, you're protecting your asset from the bad actors, you know, and you guys are, you know, the rare case of some people who are like no exceptions to the rule. And I have some of our other companies that we talk to that are like, oh, but I saw such a dramatic decrease in my applications and my God, this is hurting our business. And how do I explain this to the owners? It's like, you explain it just like this. People who are not willing to do this are not people that you want to rent your, you know, $300,000 home to, you know, right. and that's an important value there. No, I think you're right. I think if if we can show that they literally cannot connect, mm -hmm. then we will go to like a plan B using the document fraud, you know, stuff. But also I think this comes into verifying employment because mm -hmm. then we're, we're going, we're, we're doing more at this point. So if we all, we have our pay stubs is like, you know, I'm with teachers credit union. Okay. They're around here. I don't know if they're around the country or not. I just know it's a credit union. Let's say they cannot connect any systems. They're like in a little Island here. Um, and so we know that, let's say we know that. And so we get pay stubs from their employer well, we're going to then verify employment. Um, talk about technology and how technology can help landlords instead of just getting that phone number with their buddy's phone number potentially as their employer. How are how can we use technology to verify employment? Yeah, I mean, you can connect to a lot of the popular payroll systems as well. Um, and what you'll get from there is that they're an active person at that company with an active job and what they're what their pay is it's very popular in the multifamily industry to just mm -hmm. use that source i think it's short-sighted because you don't get to see kind of the full picture of their financial picture of how much money they make how much they're spending and whatnot um however some industries feel like you know maybe that's crossing the line it's getting too much information mm -hmm. again this is a decision you make based on your market and how much you need to do but you always have the option of connecting to their bank account and by the way sometimes you said like yeah they can't connect a bank account they upload a bank statement but sometimes they connect the wrong bank account so you got to be able to connect multiple bank accounts oh actually you know that money houses account she can connect her account so there's like this whole challenge of making it easy for the customer because the old days was i fill out this piece of paper i hand you a check and i'm in you there's also a balance of asking for too much Mm -hmm. where the person's like, I don't even want to rent from you. Right. You know? so I think that's where you as a professional have the pulse of what you think is the right mix of tech. Now you brought up the calls. I do want to stress that even though it's so easy to have people, you know, give you their, their best friend's phone number to verify employment, it is to me one of the laziest things not to do to also call. I mean, you should just call, you know, right. I think there's so many people who are going to be easy to kind of tell that they're not telling the truth because you're asking them really important information off the application and kind of asking some other background information. Cause now you've got a lot of pieces of data. If this person truly does work for you, 
You know, they may say, oh, I'm not in a position to disclose that information, but you will know based on, you know, conversations you've had with real employers that they are. So it is important to still pick up the phone and try to make that connection. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Speaking of picking up the phone, leads me to number five here, getting landlord references. Again, I mentioned earlier, this is becoming harder and harder. Landlords are getting yeah. more um, reluctant to share data because they've been sued. They, you know, they don't mm -hmm. want to, they want to get, they, they don't have the staff to <laughs> deal with landlord references, whatever the case is. Landlord references can be hard to get. And I know landlords love them and I totally get that, but talk about how your software can help get landlord references and what people need to look for there. Ah, it's a tough one, man. This is the one that I think is probably the most difficult to solve. I'll give you a small vignette. I had a call one day come in. It was a guy he claimed he was a police officer and he said someone had stole my identification and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, you're a scammer. No way. It's like, well, here's my badge number, call the office. And then, you know, you can check up on me. And I did. And it routed me right back to him. And I'm like, oh my God. It's like, I'm standing next to someone right in front of me who has a driver's license with your information on it, somebody else's face and a fake, you know, credit card. And I was like appalled that they were able to pull that off. And then they're like, well, will you come in and testify against this person? I said, hell no. And they're like, what? Why not? And I'm like, because I don't want them to see my face. I don't know, like, I don't know what else is going to happen to me. If right. I say something bad about this person, what will happen to me? Right. This is the general feeling, not just in identity theft that causes it to be so prevalent, but also on landlord references. Like, what is the value of you bad-mouthing a past customer of yours? You know, and how will that affect me? We're in a highly regulated market with all sorts of, you know, things that, you know, we're not even going to get into in this podcast, but like regional regulation that you may or may not know about. And now you're spreading information about somebody and denying them housing. Like that is like the first thing that people will come and say, like, I was denied housing because Jeremy said something terrible about me. Mm -hmm. So therefore I'm screwed. So it's hard. It's hard. Oh. And I think you can use things like surveys to send them off. That helps. Like we automate some surveys, which make it less, let's say, um, egregious to be able to like get on the phone with someone and start asking like a line of questioning, but to just have some very basic questions. I just don't think it's very realistic in a conversation to get what you're looking for. But what we do is if they told you that they live at ABC property and the, the management company or the landlord's name is X, we do cross-reference that to the bank statement to see if they actually paid that person, that amount that you stated. And that is the best form of verification, I think, in the market today. Yeah. At least you know they're there. You don't know the quality of the renter. I don't think you'll ever know that. So if you're chasing that, forget it. And I think this is where places like insurance options for master liability policies and, you know, ways to protect yourself from the asset being damaged will help you there. But outside of that, I, I can't think of anything else that's more bulletproof. Yeah, I like the idea of seeing they said I paid, you know, X property management LLC, you know, I that's my landlord and I see, you know, money going to that company every month for the amount of rent they said. It's right. a great way to, to look at the landlord verification. Um, and another thing too, I think, you know, as landlords, you have to be, you have to understand is that most landlords 
because well, there's there's two fears: one, paying rent, and then secondly, they leave any damages. Well, in most cases, the answer will be, I don't know. I mean, they they may know they paid rent; they probably do. But as far as damages go, they don't know, because most cases they've never been in the property, and the tenant's still living there, so they don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'll put you on the spot and. For clarification, I don't expect Jeremy to answer this question right because this is something that like you'd have to be a property manager looking at the house with your own eyes every single day to know it. But what do you think is the average amount of deduction from a security deposit? Do you think like of all the security deposits you collect, how many times do you deduct money from it when they move out? What's your oh, guess? I would say 90%. You're 90% deducting money from now. I know. So that could be anywhere in range from $10 to correct you know, the whole thing. But correct. as far as like full deposit refunds, we do have them. I mean, yeah. they're not, they're not uncommon at all here. I, I was going to just tell you, like, statistically speaking, it's a majority of security deposits are returned in full. So really? yeah, in full minus small little deductions. Like I'm not going to, I'm going to say anything less than a few hundred bucks. I'm going to say is, you know, I still considered a full, full refund. And, and so you may ask yourself like, well, why, you know, because there's a huge risk in making a deduction and having to deal with somebody who's disputing it and having to mm -hmm. like, your time is worth something. Right. Right. I don't know. Like, look, I have my own rental properties. I've always refunded the full amount. Why? Because even if there was something stupid and small, I'm like, I don't even want to deal with this guy. It was like 300 bucks. I just want him out of my life. I want to move on to the next person. I getting on the phone with him and arguing with him for three hours. That's way, my time's worth way more than that. Yeah. So, I think so it's, it's an important element to think about. I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I won't belabor the point. Maybe we can talk about this offline, but those are single family statistics. Yeah. This is actually across multifamily and single family. So it's, so it's multifamily too. I think multifamily companies generally they are corporately owned and they're less Correct. they're yeah. less um they're more forgiving on security bonds. We brought, you know, a lot of our staff is for multifamily. Yeah. You know, and they're like, wow, we, you know, we do deduct. It's like, yeah, because turnover is expensive for owners. Correct. Right. And if a tenant does damage above normal wear and tear, why should our owners pay for that? Right. right. And so yeah. And again, my statistics. But now you're talking right. about it as a pro professional property manager. And this is the value right. of a professional property manager because it's their time, not my time. So that's you right. that 200 yeah, that's right. I was talking about myself, right? Right. Like, keep in mind this the housing stock in the US, the 46 million doors, very small percentage of them are managed by professional property managers. That's a right. lot of our guys who are listening to this podcast thinking, yeah, sure. I'll go get that 200 bucks. Oh, okay. You go do that. Yeah. Experience what it's like to deal with this guy now that he's out of your house. Right. Yeah. So for you, yes, I'm all about you chasing it down, but me yeah. personally, no way. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a whole topic about yeah, another setting the, yeah, another. setting the expectations to the resident right up front. So this is how we expect it to be returned, giving them all the detail that you can and pictures and invoices about why you're making those deductions. Right. And then you're going to see those disputes go way down, even though if you deduct a few things here and there. And again, we don't, we don't take the full deposit all that often, unless there was just like they left owing rent or whatever. But in a lot of cases we do deduct something, you know, of, of uh, you know, it could be small. It could be, could be large. It just all depends. But all right, Cena. So look, I think the bottom line here, 
the reason we did this is to to put light on the fact that technology has helped landlords in so many ways. It's made our lives easier. It's not a silver bullet, right? It's like, you know, we know that we just, just because we have these great screening tools doesn't mean we're bulletproof and, the, and that we'll never place a bad tenant. They're there to help and they're there to try to stay ahead, but it's never something that, that you can say, I think you would agree, we haven't solved tenant screening. Right. It's not a, it's not a, we're here. <laughs> it's done. It's not math. It's like, you know, we, we're, we're always going to place qualified tenants because the technology will always allow a certain group to stay just ahead of, yeah. of the technology that, that we have. That's the best way to say it, which is, I think we're at a place right now where property management, whether you're a landlord or a professional property manager has evolved so much with the sophistication of fraud and the ways that, you know, things can slip through the cracks, especially when you're doing it at scale and you've got a lot of doors that you're managing, that it's really important to combine technology with what has traditionally helped, you know, property management to have its place in the world, which is domain knowledge of that market and the type yeah. of consumer you're going after. You know, I'm going to leave with one last little data point, which is really important two other buckets of places that, you know, you do pull data from our criminal and eviction data too. And we glanced over it a little bit because it's becoming more and more difficult to make decisions on criminal eviction data. Why? Because there are markets in the U S where you can evict somebody and not even put in their date of birth or social security number. So I can literally file an eviction with the word Sina sheku and that's it now luckily there are probably aren't a lot of cena shekus but there are a lot of john smiths and there are a lot of jeremy mm -hmm. Tom. i'm sure you could probably pull up 20 or 30 people it's so it's really difficult to with a high degree of certainty leverage criminal data and eviction data to make a decision also then there's this whole thing about like okay so there's a criminal case in here it was like some kind of petty theft thing that happened when they were a kid or something that doesn't even matter also criminal data only goes back seven years now eviction data can be highly unreliable too yep. could have been dropped or some of these cases could be dropped so it's like there are a lot of data sources that we can pull i think it's the professional property managers value in the equation of being able to look at the complete picture of all these data points and make a recommendation. And I want to leave the listener with this one thought. It's not binary because a lot of times somebody will be right on the spectrum of being an acceptable candidate for you. And you can increase your deposit or ask for a guarantor or other things that will make it fit. But when it comes to fraud, it's really easy to spot it when you start to look across these things and you see inconsistencies and you're like, Oh my God, you know, like this person is clearly a fraudster. Like we have examples of people and this is a real true story. It was a real person. You Jeremy rented the home to them. <clears throat> they moved in and then they immediately turned around and leased it to somebody else. Yeah. Took a couple months of rent from them and then they decided not to pay rent and disappeared they're in a state where they know that the eviction will be filed incorrectly. And now you've got to evict somebody that you've never done business with. Yeah. <clears throat> These are just one of many, many type of sophisticated scams that are happening that you're like, well, how would you stop that? How would the tech stop it? The tech cannot. 
These are things <laughs> that are done by people who are, their full-time job is to make sure that home is being managed properly. Right. So I'll just leave you with that. Yeah. Seen, I appreciate it. It's always good yeah, catching up it's with always you. So much fun to talk to you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, we mentioned some other podcasts we could do, and maybe we should because there's a lot to talk about with fraud. This is just one piece of it. You know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things out there that landlords have to stay in front of. So, but again, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we hope everyone's picked up some information that will help them in their investing. We'll be back in two weeks with another podcast. In the meantime. We encourage you to share this podcast with your investing friends, leave us a review, and don't hesitate to reach out to us with any questions. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and please stay invested in your investment.